for anybody to, to dismiss the significance of space and the connections of the polar regions to the space domain, it would be naive. We've got one pole, Antarctica, which is characterized by global cooperation and collaboration, uh, heralded as a win of sorts from the Cold War era, whereas the Arctic is in my opinion, sort of framed in terms of a looming clash over the North Pole. But these are both misconceptions. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Liz Buchanan and Dr. Ryan Burke. Both are Modern War Institute fellows, and they are also the directors of a brand new initiative launched this week that MWI is hosting. It's called Project 6633, and it's going to be a platform for discussion, debate, and analysis, all centered on Arctic and Antarctic security. In the conversation, you'll hear Ryan and Liz talk about the genesis of the project and why they believe discussions about these two regions are so important. They also share their thoughts on some of the main polar security challenges and how great power competition might play out in these two opposite ends of the earth. It was a really interesting discussion to record and it's a great primer to sort of set the stage for the type of content Project 6633 will feature going forward. But before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, find it on your favorite podcast app and please rate and review it, which really helps us reach new listeners. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government, or of any organization either guest is affiliated with, including the Australian Department of Defense and Australian government. All right, enjoy the episode. Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan and Dr. Ryan Burke, it is a pleasure to have you both on the MWI podcast to talk about Project 6633, which is a new initiative uh, that MWI is privileged to be able to host and that the two of you are going to uh, be running. Uh, the project will focus on Arctic and Antarctic security, so that's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to hear more about kind of the project and 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 what you hope will come of it. We'll talk about some of the issues uh, that are at play in these two regions, but to begin, I wonder if we can just you know give listeners a little bit about your background. You're both uh, MWI fellows, um, but can you kind of talk about what brought you to um, you know polar security as as an area of your research focus? Liz, maybe we can begin with you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, John. So I came to the polar regions kind of collectively, um, actually from an energy security background. So my research interest um, in that still shapes the broader geopolitical interest I have in the regions. Um, it started with my sub-master's thesis on natural gas weapons in the context of Russia-Ukrainian relations. I actually then moved out of academia, which not too many people know, um, and I went into the private sector with an oil major uh, here in Australia working on fuel security chains. And it was actually during that time with that oil major that I really started um, developing an interest in the Arctic, mainly because that particular IOC was developing its own Arctic energy footprint. Uh, so the allure of academia then called and I left to undertake a PhD on drivers of Russian Arctic strategy under Putin. Um, of course, you know, energy security is a huge part of this agenda. And I was interested, I think, primarily on how energy will shape the future geopolitics of the region. 
I then joined the NATO Defence College as a Partner Across the Globe Maritime Fellow, and I delved into the GIUK gap and High North problem set generally uh, for the Alliance. Back in Australia, I led a research project for the EU Commission on Russian energy strategy and looked at the pivot towards Asia, which has obviously got clear implications for our own sort of Australian energy export strategy. And now I'm based at the Australian War College, delivering the Defence and Strategic Studies course for our 06s and 07s across Australian defence. And here again, the polar kind of region pops up. I look at these regions in the context of strategic competition. So while there's an obvious Antarctic interest, given Australia's 42% claim and traditional stewardship of the continent, I'm also delivering a US State Department research project, which looks into the issue of Antarctica within the US-Australia alliance. You know, we've got our mateship, which is undeniable, but it is still the case that Antarctica is somewhat of a elephant in the room. You know, Washington does not acknowledge our claim. So I'm looking at, at the polar regions in those kind of contexts. Great. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, and John, it's it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Happy 2021 to everybody. So uh, <laughs> I'm I'm thrilled to uh, to be part of this project because I, I came at the the Arctic and the polar regions broadly in a little bit more of an indirect manner than than Liz did. Obviously, Liz has been working in in these regions by way of uh, policy work and, and academic work for quite a while. Um, I'd say my the extent of my my interest and my exposure to this particular academic field and and policy discussion really only extends about the 18 to 24 months. So so by way of comparison, not nearly as as uh, in depth or lengthy, but uh, I do have some, some pretty interesting uh, progression and, and background by way of how I got here, which really started with my PhD work uh, in the Homeland Defense and Defense Support of Civil Authority sphere. And, and so I've been doing this for the better part of the last decade, uh, really since about 2012-13 timeframe when I started getting into uh, work with NORTHCOM, US NORTHCOM, and, and doing some work with uh, with their mission set. And so over the course of my, my work there, I'd written a couple books on Defense Support of Civil Authorities and defense policy and the military's role in, in responding to, uh, to disasters on the homeland. And then that obviously took a homeland defense track. And then as NORTHCOM evolved, as the trajectories and the contours of the command evolved, then they started focusing more on the homeland defense piece uh, rather than the, the DISCA piece. I started noticing, obviously, given my, my contacts and, and my, uh, my interactions with folks in NORTHCOM, I started noticing that the command was kind of taking a, a more northward trajectory, you know, pardon the pun. And what I started doing is having more and more conversations and, and folks that I knew at the command said, if you want to, you want to go where we're going, you need to, you need to go north. You need to go up to the Arctic, right? You need to think about these issues. So naturally with my exposure and my, my, uh, my networks, I started poking around and, and digging into some questions and asking some, uh, some pretty complex things of some folks that, uh, frankly, I wasn't getting a lot of good answers on, at least not that I thought were, were satisfactory by way of, uh, substance and, and informative, um, knowledge. So I started asking more and more questions and I started writing some articles and then I ended up getting into 
to involved in a book project that I just completed uh, the manuscript on. This should be coming out here in uh, in the summer of 2021, looking at this exact issue of, of great power competition and, and what its status is within the Arctic, but then also extending down to Antarctica. And so we're going to talk about that over the course of this podcast. But uh, again, my, my interest is, is relatively new compared to Liz, but at the same time, I've been involved in this uh, in, in, a, in a heavy and, and in-depth manner for the better part of the last two years. So looking forward to it. Yeah, as am I. Um, you know, I've been I've been really excited about this project since we first started talking about it uh, many months ago. So I'm uh, really, really thrilled to uh, to see it get off the ground this week. Liz, if I can ask you to kind of describe, you know, what what is Project sixty six thirty three going to be? Um, you know, how, what form is it going to take? What's its purpose? Its its reason for being. Yeah. Okay. Well, the birth story of this one's quite interesting. Um, Obviously, there's a few polar research outfits that do exist internationally, but Ryan and I felt that the majority seemed to focus on solely the Arctic um, as a polar zone, almost as if Antarctica is shelved as sorted due to the treaty system. And we really wanted to fill this gap. There's nothing that really looked collectively how we wanted to at the regions. And we also wanted to look at the bigger picture, you know, what global elements and forces are shaping the polar regions. We didn't want to separate out the two, uh, obviously, while acknowledging the differences in governance, geography, stakeholders and interests. There are clear lessons applicable uh, and the trajectories in some cases are repeating. But I think the key purpose for how we arrived at Project 6633 is to really diversify the discussion we have on polar affairs. You know, sure, debate today allows for military security focuses. Indeed, this notion of polar warfare does garner attention. But I think it tends to focus on the cooperation and multilateralism wins in the zones. So Project 6633 puts up front the fact that we want to curate and cultivate these, you know, realist perceptions of the polar regions. And we don't apologise for that. Um, But impact-wise, I hope it fosters global discussion and debate regarding the more military security challenges and, which I think is important, opportunities of both the Arctic and Antarctica. And we should also note that the that sixty six thirty three comes from the lines of latitude, uh, sixty six degrees thirty three minutes north and south, respectively, that delineate the Arctic and Antarctic circles. Um, Ryan, Liz just did a, a, I think, a pretty good job of describing why uh, polar security challenges are important to study and 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 why therefore we're launching this project. Um, are they especially? Uh, important to study now uh, in the current global strategic, geostrategic context? Um, it, to answer the question about why why this is the right time, I mean, it really kind of goes back to what this project is and what we're trying to do. I mean, so in line with the idea of MWI's mission statement, which is to research, ed- educate, and integrate, we see 6633 as a platform, as an intellectual forum, probably is a better way to describe it, to discuss the polar regions within the context of international security, but specifically focus within the lens of great power competition. And in, in so doing, we intend to articulate the issues, right, the geopolitical, geostrategic issues that are that are occurring in the polar regions advocate for their or advocate their awareness right within this context and within this lens and then obviously advance knowledge so again it's an art, the idea of articulating advocating and advancing 
the idea of polar region security, international security affairs, defense policy, I mean, you name it, anything that falls within the broader security spectrum, that's what we're trying to do. And so within that broader, within that broader context, again, why this is the right time is because we look at this uh, this renewed great power competition, right? We're we're seeing a lot of academic scholarship now devoted to to this idea, this phrase of great power competition, such that it's really become a kind of a buzzword bingo uh, approach, right? Every article we read in the last in the last five, well, probably three four years, really, since I believe it was National Defense Strategy that uh, that came back out with this phrase. Um, now we're seeing just everything is great power competition, this and great power competition that, and the majority of, and again, I can't speak for Liz and, and what. What the uh, the Australian perspective is, but from the United States perspective, the the majority of this of this dialogue has been really focused on the Asia Pacific, the Indo PACOM uh, AOR and area responsibility for the listeners not familiar. And what Liz and I had decided, and Liz mentioned this at the beginning, is that we had seen that uh, there is there are great power dynamics that are occurring in the polar regions, both the Arctic and Antarctica, both with Russia and China by way of presence. The United States obviously being a, uh, a factor in, in both of these regions as well through presence, through a scientific commitment, obviously leadership stance in, in, uh, in the polar governance mechanisms. Um, but again, we're, we're kind of, I hate to use the phrase devolving because it sounds so negative, but I think that's the reality is that we are devolving into a, a dynamic of, of evolving competition. And we would be naive to overlook that fact. And we would be naive to say that, well, you know what, the polar regions are, are far away and they're cold and they're dark seasonally. And uh, there's ice pack and there's all kinds of limitations to the point that uh, nobody wants a fight up there. I think we can all agree that it's probably, it's probably less realistic than it is in certain other places, given the environmental and the geographic factors. But at the same time, again, putting our, just sticking our heads in the sand and, and suggesting that it's never going to happen is also naive. And it, it, it fundamentally overlooks the idea of state self-interest uh, driving an opportunity to, uh, to try to capitalize on opportunity and seizing opportunity, if you will. So I'm sure Liz has got some things she can add to that. Yeah, definitely. You know, this idea that geopolitical flashpoints are always going to garner headlines and clickback functions and, you know, raise global attention is completely true when we think in the context of the polar regions. You know, it's no, they're no exception to this rule. Um, you know, most global developments that we can think of are also unfolding in real time in both polar regions. Climate change, like what Ryan's speaking to, great power politics, energy security, sustainable development, Indigenous rights, new age industrialization, digital connectivity advancement, you know, the list goes on and on. But what appears to be lacking, and again, coming back to this kind of rationale for the project, is a fundamental understanding of the nuts and bolts of the Arctic and Antarctic, you know, and without a solid grasp of these structures, this narrative of global developments is often applied incorrectly to the polar regions. And it's extrapolated, which clouds the reality of what's really going on. Yeah, and to that point, John, if I could just interject real quick or just add one other thing, is the fact that, as, as Liz mentions, right, these problems, these security problems, they extend the spectrum or they expand, extend into the spectrum and evolve beyond the diplomatic piece, right? It's a it's an economic issue. It, it's an informational issue. It certainly can be a military issue. And we're seeing that more and more. But the again, the fundamental reality in, in the field that we are in is that increased presence will generally lead to, in some manner of speaking, strategic uncertainty. 
And I think, again, it's, it's, we've got to be clear on the fact that if we have strategic uncertainty presenting in any region, whether it's the polar regions or Indo-PACOM or you name it, we are presenting an opportunity, not to say that it's going to happen, but with strategic uncertainty, you will start to see or it at least presents the conditions for strategic miscalculation. And, and this is one of those things that we, again, not to, not to sound hyperbolic and not to sound alarmist, but we want to raise awareness to the facts that, that these issues are going on. And there is a, an evolving dynamic that, uh, that not a lot of people are really paying attention to in, in, the, in the broader great power competition spectrum. So I want to I want to kind of uh, spend I think most of the rest of this conversation kind of digging into you know to the extent that we can uh, in the time available some of the substantive issues that uh, that people that follow this project are going to see discussed uh, explored uh, but first I, I want to kind of ask one more kind of conceptual question we've we, you guys have made a pretty compelling case you know to to me, certainly, but I've been on board this project, but I think even to a skeptic that this is something that is important that people should be paying attention to. It's something that, um, you know, from a U.S. military perspective, we consistently find ourselves sort of bouncing from one thing we're not ready for to another thing we're not ready for to another thing. That was the case in the early 2000s. We found ourselves, you know, engaging in stability operations without kind of knowing what we were doing and had to relearn a lot of things. Um coming out of Iraq and, and, you know, almost out of Afghanistan, we kind of said, we forgot how to do large scale combat operations. We've got to refigure that out. Uh, the same can be said for particular environments, um, particular regions. And I think that this is one of them. So, uh, Ryan, you're, you are at the U S air force Academy, Liz at the Australian defense college. Um, you guys have both mentioned your perspectives. I think it doesn't take the most perceptive listener to, to detect slight differences in your accents. Um, how, I guess how Liz, given that Antarctica is perhaps a little bit more important uh, to Australia and Ryan, especially with your perspective with NORAD Northcom looking principally, although not exclusively at the, uh, at the Arctic, can you guys kind of talk about, um, you know, what sets these two regions apart? Now uh, we, we know that they're both, you know, what they have in common, they're at the ends of the earth and, and they're cold. Um, but I think their differences are more important to identify. Can you talk a little bit about those? Um, well, the first point, I think, in response, John, is that, yeah, the differences are quite obvious, um, but the fundamental kind of reality that bridges both the US and the Australian perspectives beyond where we are geographically located in terms of each poll is that we both um, undergone a serious breakdown in communication, I think, in terms of strategic uh, interests in the polar regions, which has been, I think, facilitated by some sort of, you know, um, oversight in our political processes in terms of institutional knowledge. You know, we've, we've perhaps forgotten that these are uh, theatres for strategic competition, uh, notwithstanding the treaty system in the Antarctic you know, there's, there's still clear issues that are coming um, out of the Southern Pole. So I think in terms of their difference um, in place of geopolitics and international security, which is the context the project focuses on, um, on face value, we've got one pole, Antarctica, which is characterised by global cooperation and collaboration, uh, heralded as a win of sorts from the Cold War era, which is enshrined by a treaty system. Whereas the Arctic is 
in my opinion, sort of framed in terms of a looming clash over the North Pole. But these are both misconceptions and neither Washington nor Canberra, in my opinion, is doing the legwork to rectify um, these misconceptions. And this is a point of commonality for both Ryan and I in this project. You know, our global assumptions on the political health of the polar regions isn't isn't on point. You know, the Arctic is not heralded, is not headed, sorry, towards a new Cold War. It's really a global common, um, sorry, it's not really a global commons by way of international law in any case. We've got various territorial seas encircling the Arctic Ocean um, and open cooperation between these liberal states is alive and well, whereas the Antarctic is continually from a Canberra point of view, out of sight and out of mind, you know. Indeed, we've got a treaty system that was crafted in the 1950s, which I would argue is no longer fit for purpose. Just look to the dual use and grey zone manipulation of the treaty articles, which is now commonplace by actors. Um, For example, military applications for most scientific work currently underway is is occurring. Um, So I think... I'd like to be focusing more on this point of commonality, which is both Washington and Canberra are perhaps asleep at the wheel when it comes to the polar trajectories. Yeah, and and I 100% agree with with Liz's assessment of, of Antarctica. And just as as an aside, a quick uh, off ramp. In the last I'd say 18 or so months, as I've been doing my book research, having a lot of conversations with a lot of folks in the U.S. sphere, talked to a lot of folks down in Australia, and then uh, some in New Zealand, and and most everybody is echoing these same sentiments. Anybody that is that is part of this conversation that has any base of substantive knowledge or experience or exposure is really echoing these exact same things that Liz just articulated. And it, this is again part of the reason for this project is to bring more attention to these these complex issues and and raise awareness and, and say that this is not just because we have a treaty in Antarctica that was signed in 1959 and went into force in 1961 in no way means that it's going to it's going to stand the test of time that it's going to endure in the against the tests of of, uh, of 21st century great, great power politics. So we just, we need to think about these things again in broader context. Now to, to switch up to the Arctic, we, we see again issues like we see down in, in Antarctica. In, in, excuse me, in, in Antarctica, we see issues of territoriality, right? We see issues of of uh, unresolved sovereignty. Um, we see issues of competing claims, and, and we see issues of of resource competition, and a handful of other things that that are now emerging as a result of of the literal changing geographic and physical environment. And I know there's a lot of discussion out there about whether the Arctic is really changing in the way that people say it is, and some people are making you know what other are what others argue as false connections between the the openness, if you will, of this region and uh, and the evolution of competition. Uh, But again, from a U.S. perspective, and this is where my my exposure to the Air Force Academy and and the Air Force community writ large comes in handy is the fact that uh, I can tell you that the majority of the folks, even at the highest levels of the U.S. Air Force and and even into the extent of the Department of Defense, they're focused on this and and they are thinking about the Arctic in in a defense lens. And it's from the United States perspective, it's much more so a homeland defense issue, as you You'll see here in, in uh, some content that we post on the website in the next couple of days that there are some folks that are really thinking about uh, we need to be oriented north. We need to think about some of these 
issues. But beyond that, we, we look at some of the the evolving issues. And, and I think Liz and I have, have used the phrase in various writings, contested comments. Um, the Arctic and Antarctica, you know, we, we look at the, the, the literal geographic or physical differences. The Arctic is, is an ice bath, right? And, and Antarctica is a big ice cube. So it, it's a sense that there's it's a, a water body versus a landmass or at least an ice covered landmass um, on either side of the uh, either end of the earth. But there are still a heck of a lot of, of similarities in, in how geopolitics is framing the, I'm, I'm not going to call it a looming problem, but how the, the geopolitics and great power competition is framing what, what the future will be and what it will literally look like in both of these regions. And the United States and Australia, they're, they're tending to these and they're going to attend to these issues. So if the, if the Arctic from a U.S. perspective um, is best conceptualized as a homeland defense problem, and I know that there are, you know, this is not solely a, a defense issue or a military issue or even a security issue, um, but, but, you know, bear with me, if, if it is best conceptualized as a homeland defense problem, can you kind of put a finer point on it? Can you give an example of why that's the case? Well, for the first part, uh, and you'll see again in some of the stuff that uh, that comes out here in the next couple of days on the on the on the site, but uh, we look at Alaska, and and Alaska is in some ways responsible for U.S. sovereignty, right? It's a single state responsible for U.S. sovereignty in the Arctic, and I, I know some people listening. There's a lot of Arctic naysayers out there, and I don't mean that in a disparaging manner. It's just an objective observation. There are a lot of folks that say, well, no, it's it's really not. Um, there's no there's no security, there's no defense issue in the Arctic because there's no there's no military threat up there. Again, that's a that's a respectable position, and a lot of people suggest uh, that it, any any suggestion to the contrary is is hyperbolic and blown out of proportion, and it's based on alarmist narrative and rhetoric. I, I think that uh, what those people would be would be interested to know is, is some of the perspectives coming from the highest levels of our our defense department and some of the folks uh, with with the most stars in their collars or uh, or creating policy in the Pentagon. They don't they don't see it that way, and. Uh, uh, these are folks with some different access, different perspectives that that see it as a, to answer your question, it's, it is a homeland defense issue in the sense that we have basically a, a massive coastline on the state of Alaska that is essentially for for all intents and purposes, unguarded. We've got some Coast Guard presence up there. We've got some Marines every once in a while that uh, that head up to the northern slope and do some exercises. But but beyond that, if you compare our military posture on the northern coast of Alaska relative to the east or west coast of the United States, or even the Gulf Coast for that matter, it is it is comparably absent. Um, relative to uh, to our posturing. So if you think about, as an analogy, right, if, if we think about Russian submarines floating off the coast of uh, of, uh, of New York, right, and, and not to suggest that they don't, um, but uh, if we had if we had confirmed knowledge that they were floating within a particular region or a particular distance, I guarantee there'd be a lot more tension than, uh, than there currently is um, relative to if we had it up in the Arctic, that same position. Now we have Russian, uh, Russian aircraft that, that uh, extend into the Alaskan Air Defense Identification Zone on a fairly regular basis, such that it's become almost commonplace, if not normal, to to have Russian or excuse me, U.S. Uh, military intercepts of of uh, Russian birds in. Granted, it's not uh, it's not sovereign airspace. The ADIS extends into international airspace, but nonetheless, it is a it is a region of uh, of awareness, right? And, and the United States, you know, I think we we hear this, you know, actual uh, presence 
presence equals influence. But if we're not present, then we can't be influential. You know, we got to think about who's who's extending into our region and what are they what are they trying to do? What is the ultimate uh, what is the ultimate end goal? What is the end game or end state? Did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, um, I was just going to say, I mean, beyond the obvious interest for Washington in the Arctic, you've got the fact that you share a border there with Russia. Are the Russians coming, right? Um, Australia is an interesting case because compared to Washington, we we tend to, I think, for at least the last decade or so, play down the geopolitical challenge on our southern doorstep. You know, it's about it's about cooperation and it's about scientific leadership. Um, but the Antarctic has always been fundamentally geopolitical for Canberra. You know, it was in the Cold War, we were worried just going through the archives, which is something I do on my sort of days off. Um, we were worried about Soviets building submarine bases to launch from the Antarctic. Um, I mean, now we're not worried about Soviets. We've got the Chinese who've set up most of their bases in Australian claimed territory. Um, but there's been a real swift uh, departure, at least in the defence circles here in Australia, about Antarctica, what we call the problem of Antarctica. Um, and this has impacted the framing of how we think about Antarctica. Um, while this hasn't really permeated through to much of the academic or I guess the, the sort of the public service circles, it is the fact that we herald ourselves, Australia, as environmental stewards of Antarctica. And yet in the same breath, we are undertaking the first year-round paved runway. We're literally concreting a vast, a vast sector of, of, of the continent that we have, you know, um, strive to protect in terms of environmental standards. So there's such a, a duality there. Um, and I think it, it, it does come down to the fact that the polar regions as contested commons are fundamentally geopolitical. No, no other way you can brand them. So is, so would I be right to then kind of, um, you know, at the risk of losing a lot of the nuance of what both of you just said, to say that, you know, the U.S. looks at the Arctic and and, and it's, it's maybe best maybe not ideally, but best conceptualized as a homeland defense uh, problem or, or set of problems. Antarctica is really a geopolitical uh, set of problems. Um, and certainly there are defense implications to that. And there are geopolitical implications to looking to the homeland defense problems in the Arctic. But um, they're not they're not one and the same by any means uh, in terms of, you know, the frame through which we should understand them Uh or in terms of the actors involved. And that's the next question that I want to kind of ask you, you know, at the risk of, um, you know, fear mongering or militarizing the discussion, you know, with that caveat in mind, are there kind of pacing threats and not necessarily, you know, military threats, but if we kind of expand the scope of, of that to, to mean pacing threats in terms of this competition, uh, who are most active in either of these regions, uh, who are they and what are they up to? Let's start, you know, kind of in Antarctica. Liz, maybe you can, you can weigh in. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I just wanted to touch base on kind of who we are aiming this project at. So I don't think it, it sort of um, informs my answer because I don't think it's helpful to, you know, label state A or state B as, you know, the naysayer or the problem problem actor in either polar regions, um, that we're, we're hoping to reach uh, the military security focus of this project 
you know, doesn't mean that we aren't interested in climate change or economic developments, but we're framing these issues in terms of economic coercion or manipulation. And we're looking at the impact of climate change in terms of its impact on defence planning um, and exercises in the regions. So while we're aiming at military service members, professionals, and definitely defence policymakers, um, in the same breath, we're wanting to connect academics and journalists to this community too, um, to sort of form a nexus in which collaborative discussion and debate can emerge. So in a sense, we want to bridge the divide that exists um, in terms of the expertise. And I think in doing so, we're going to come up with, in answering your question directly, John, you know, what's who, who's the big threat in, in the polar regions, we're going to come up with a range of answers to this question, which I think is good and needed. Um, I think it's higher level for me. So the reassumption of great power politics and this notion of conquest and mankind's, you know, lifelong um, achievements and advancements or abilities to conquer the ends of the earth is something to watch, as well as this re-emerging role of the kind of Stalin-Soviet um, polar identity component to great power resurgence is for me something that's the biggest threat to the polar regions collectively. Um, it's because most of these agendas, you know, great polar power agendas, are aimed for domestic consumption. Um, this, I think, inserts a great deal of uncertainty into the broader conception of the polar regions, and that's something that Ryan spoke to previously. You know, this leads to miscalculations. Um, of course, there's a duality in this threat because it's an opportunity. So you can craft one's great power polar identity based on your ability to be active and present in both the Arctic and the Antarctic, if this means boots on the ground, if this means the largest number of icebreakers, you know, or it could take the form of climate stewardship and sustainable development initiatives in the polar in the polar zones. So I think the point is the polar regions are, you know, ever evolving, much like, you know, in a nod to the name, we've got Project 6633. We know that these latitudes are moving. Um, we don't have all the answers, but we can't repeat this breakdown in generational communication about the security issues in the polar regions. And I think this project's a really important start to, you know, formalising institutional knowledge in the polar regions and security issues. With regard to the pacing threat, John, and, and Liz, Liz described and articulated it exceptionally well, there's really not much I can add to the, the broader scope, but I can tell you from a U.S. perspective that the United States, it's, it's, so it's a, it's a two-factor question, two-factor answer. Are we on pace, behind, or ahead of the pace in the Arctic? And the same question posed to the Antarctic. And again, speaking from, from conversations with a lot of really smart and informed folks over the last couple of years, that I think that we feel as though we are on pace, if not even maybe ahead of pace in, in the Arctic. And that, that's probably surprising uh, for a lot of people to hear, but given a lot of the rhetoric that's, that's come out over the last, I'd say, probably three, four years in, in the scholarly field. But the reality is, again, that the United States is present uh, in the Arctic, especially by way of uh, subsurface presence in, in uh, submarine operations. We've been 
we've been present in the Arctic for decades. Um, we are we lack as much surface presence, obviously, as uh, as Russia. But that's of course Russia has eighteen thousand miles of Arctic coastline that the United mm-hmm. States doesn't have, and and so there's there's this there's this constant narrative, this constant rhetoric out there that says that uh, well Russia is militarizing the Arctic and and they're re they're refurbishing Soviet era bases and and uh, you know reestablishing a Cold War posture and and what are they doing it for? And there's all this question out there as to what they're doing it for and why. And we're going to answer. We're going to we're not going to answer. We're going to tackle and engage with some of those questions over the course of this project um, because I, I think there is a a divergence of opinion and a divergence of assessment as to what they are doing and why. And then the question is China. What are they doing in the Arctic? Mm-hmm. Why? Why are they trying to extend their their position into by way of infrastructure into Norway, into Iceland, into Canada? Right. There's been, there's been some stuff that have come out over the last uh, several weeks, uh, in particular on on China's posturing in the Arctic, which is effectively nothing new in the scope of the last four or five years. But the United States sees these things see, by way of the Arctic anyway. They see these these um, evolving activities from what what we refer to as for better or worse great power competitors, if not even adversaries. Um, and we see that as something that requires strategic attention. And, and again, whether it should or should not, that's part of the debate, but that's what we're going to get into through this project. From an Antarctic standpoint, just to kind of cap this off and then we can get into some other stuff, the, the United States, we, we know we're far away, uh, but at the same time, we got to keep in mind that uh, the United States has been a leader in Antarctic geopolitics for, uh, for as long as they've existed. If you think about the, the start of Antarctic geopolitics, at least formalized uh, start back in the 50s, uh, 57, 58 was the international geophysical year. And then obviously that led to the creation of, uh, of the Antarctic Treaty in, in 59 and signed into force in 1961. The United States was the lead behind that, right? And so they, the United States, Washington has largely thought of itself as an Antarctic leader for, for the last 50 plus years. And there, that's an objective reality. So we don't want to, to I use the phrase again, put your head in the, put our head in the sand and just lose sight of that fact. And we, we now know we're seeing the objective realities of what's happening in Antarctica, and we we know uh, that that it requires a little bit more attention. The United States has, has conducted military operations in Antarctica, right? mm-hmm. obviously before the um, uh, before the, the the signing of the treaty. Um, but if you know, without getting into a history lesson, I mean, we go all the way back to 1946 and, and Operation High Jump, and the United States conducted operations like was was talking about because there was some concern, uh, at least under the the surface, there was some concern about uh, about German occupation and Soviet occupation of Antarctica and, and what are who's going to exploit this region and for what purpose, right? It was back to this idea of communist containment. Um, the, the formal acknowledgement of the formal mission statement of that operation was a, a research and a scientific and a mapping exercise or a mapping mission. But, you know, again, this is part of the, the nuance of the conversation. What are, what were we really doing and why? And, uh, even today when, when the United States conducts Operation Deep Freeze and supports its, uh, its National Science Foundation counterparts, um, or the military, the DOD supports the NSF and the U.S. Antarctic programs by way of military logistics transport. 
Right. This is I'm not suggesting that the United States military is going down there and conducting military maneuvers because that would be a blatant violation of the treaty. Uh, but we are, I'm sure, looking at what other folks are doing. Right. What is China doing? What might Russia do in, in following in China's footsteps? And, and so these are things that, again, we can't just we can't just assume are not going to happen simply on the basis of, of the existence of a treaty. Um, you you got to think about these things and, and think about where the realities might go as a basis of or on the basis of uh, evolving great power competition in geopolitics. Another kind of gritty assessment, I think, that falls to the wayside is the role of China in the polar regions. Um, And we need to consider China's um, interests in both regions, Arctic and Antarctic. But we need to be asking ourselves, which we want to do with this project, you know, why do they diverge? China is a welcomed Antarctic stakeholder by way of the ATS, the treaty member. But China is also, sort of in terms of governance structures, China is also an Arctic party by way of its observership to the Arctic Council, and yet it's viewed as the gatecrasher in the high north. You know, so how do these, how do the polar regions' governance structures facilitate how Western stakeholders perceive Chinese polar interests? You know, how is Beijing in turn tailoring its own strategy towards each each pole? And these are the kind of questions I think the project that. Uh, Ryan and I have pulled together is is really looking at delving into. In a sense, the West tends to separate the two poles. In the, I know in academia we do. We've got Arctic experts and Antarctic experts. But I think the real value comes in comparing and contrasting the two uh, as one global theatre, and it actually offers valuable policy lessons and insights for defence planning. So when I ask about climate change, um, you know, in the Arctic, we talk about because it is like, like Ryan, like you said, it's a, it's a frozen sea, but it's becoming a less a frozen sea. It's becoming less frozen, uh, you know, with every passing day, um, which opens up uh, potential, potential sea lanes of transit. um, And there's going to be competition over that. presumably it opens up access to natural resources we've already seen that competition playing out on some level for some time in antarctica it's a little bit different um because it's not opening up sea lanes necessarily but but i can only assume that it's going to change the theater and therefore change the character of the competition uh in both of those regions um liz maybe if i can start with you can you talk about the role of climate change in terms of the geopolitics of antarctica and also um, you know, how, how, how that competition is likely to, the way that it plays out is likely to change uh, in the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, when considering climate change in the Antarctic um, theatre, it has been used for decades in terms of scientific research um, and environmental protection as, I guess, the basis or the, the foundation for um, state Antarctic agendas, you know. Why are we engaged in the Antarctic? For environmental reasons. Um, China, for example, um, says that a key component of its own Antarctic strategy is to understand climate change in terms of how that will impact weather systems. Um, Australia has a similar kind of approach. We're down in Antarctica to understand how climate is affecting our own extreme weather events. Um, so I think there's a legitimate um, interest there in understanding how climate change will impact 
um, state security. But I think increasingly climate change is being used as somewhat of a uh, mask um, to further strategic interests in the southern continent. And we most recently saw this with China's Dome A, Dome Argus, which is the highest point on the Antarctic ice sheet, and that falls within the Australian Antarctic Territory. They came up with a Dome A kind of um, uh, management strategy. And basically what they wanted to do within the context of the Antarctic Treaty System They wanted to put together a specially managed area, which basically said, we've got X number of Chinese scientists working on the climate change and environmental problem in Dome Argus region. And to protect our research um, and the site, we need to basically cordon off the area. So they tabled what was known as a code of conduct um, to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting. And it was basically in what we'd call like an annexation light of the region. You know, only China had access to this point. Um, You needed to ask for permission to transit across this point and you couldn't even fly over. Obviously, this was rejected um, by the party members based on the fact, quite, quite interestingly, that in order to have a specially managed area, you need to be able to prove that there is competing scientific research underway which there is not. Australia is not currently doing anything at Dome Argus. Um, We saw in Canberra this as a play to control Dome Argus, the highest point, therefore the clearest shot to space uh, for their own Beidou satellite system, which under the treaty system is allowed, it's permissible. Um, If you say it is for understanding climate change or it is for scientific research, it is fine. We know that there is clear military um, applications of this satellite system. So in a sense, Antarctica has seen, I think, climate change become somewhat of a uh, masking factor for strategic interests. And I think Ryan can talk to that in the Arctic as well. Yeah, it's precisely, it's extraordinarily well stated, Liz. The fact that uh, just to tie off Antarctica, it's the same thing for the United States. The United States sees Antarctica as a, as a space power projection platform. And you know, we, we won't say that publicly, right? Because we, we understand the Antarctic Treaty and what it says, and we understand what the, what the international uh, uh, narrative needs to say. And we also understand our position in the, in the leadership discussion. But at the same time, we, we're also pragmatists, whether we want to admit it or not. And we realize the, the opportunity there for, to use a, a Chinese phrase, exploitation. Right to, to to exploit Antarctica for the opportunities that it presents against strategically, politically, uh, in in the broader resource competition narrative. I mean, you name it. There are there are more than uh, than a few compelling opportunities for uh, for the Antarctic Antarctic proposition, if you will, to to compel some some real discussion and, and maybe even some presence in, in the future. It's it's similar to the to the Arctic anyway. Is similar to Antarctica, in in the sense. That again, it's things are difficult. Uh, we have communications latency. Anything north of really about 65, 66 degrees north, uh, we have inadequate uh, communication systems. We have inadequate uh, uh, space power projection. But again, we see the opportunities 
presenting themselves for where the the future of of geostrategic competition geopolitics are going and for anybody to, to dismiss the significance of space and the connections of the polar regions to the space domain it would be naive and this is a reality that we have to we have to assume or we have to come to grips with and we have to again to use a, a terrible phrase or a terrible pun we have to warm up to right we have to warm up to this this uh this frankly cold reality and uh you know and i know liz loves the you know the puns right but this is kind of why i do it because it's it's almost it's almost in a sense like it's permeating the conversation and some of them are, are just fundamentally ridiculous but the other there's others that that do have some significance behind them and what they mean and, and the, the weight and connotation that they carry. So mm-hmm. um, broadly speaking with the Arctic, I mean, the United States sees this as an opportunity. We see it uh, just like the, the Antarctic, but uh, it's the Arctic is something that compels the United States attention uh, much more so much. I, I don't even want to say aggressively, but I'll go with that. Uh, it, it compels a much more aggressive um, orientation and posture. And we're seeing that now as a result of some of the, the evolving documentation and the strategic documents that, that we've seen come out of DOD uh, as recently as, as 2019. And then with the Air Force strategy in 2020 that was released back uh, this past summer. So uh, just one quick aside, though, we also have to understand that the that the Arctic strategies by way of DOD, that's not a new thing either. The, the DOD has had mm-hmm. Arctic strategies every three years thereabouts uh, for, for several years now to the point that we're in we're into several iterations but if you look at the the nomenclature within each of these strategies you see an evolving trend if you go back to one of the earlier ones by way of this this uh, 21st century conversation anyway we don't see a whole lot of mention of china but we see a lot of mention of Russia, at least in the early stages back in the, the 11, 12 time frame. But now if you look at the 2019 Arctic strategy, you don't have the code or the numbers in front of me, um, but it's a couple dozen times that uh, the China is mentioned in the context of the, uh, I believe of the 2019 Arctic strategy and Russia is mentioned equally as much. So uh, you see evolving contours, trans trajectories of, of the United States and what they are thinking about, what they're focusing on and, and where we want to put our attention within this broader Arctic conversation that I think many of much of it extends in a similar manner to our concerns with the security uh, proposition in in Antarctica. Yeah, I think just to follow on from that, most of the kind of hot takes and this kind of Arctic or Antarctic meltdown, (laughs) there's your pun, um, coverage, Mm -hmm. I think in order to be hitting the right mark needs to cover that kind of trinity of you need to understand the capabilities in the same breath we need to understand the intent of stakeholders, but we also need to understand the market dynamics and the forces. You know, you could you could drill for your life at the North Pole for oil. It doesn't change the fact that it's not commercially viable. So why would we? Um, well, at least for now. So I think that kind of trinity needs to be apparent when we're assessing any kind of polar development in terms of resources, but we don't. Yeah. And one thing to add to that too is, as far as the, to, we talk about the complexities of the the geopolitics in each of these regions. I think there's a prevailing assumption, and Liz and I, I think we share the same position on this. But there's a prevailing assumption that in both polar regions, this idea of liberal institutionalism, right, this idea of international governance, will prevail and and maintain itself and maintain this idea of at least for the Arctic, a zone of peace, uh, exceptionalism, right, and then in, in the Antarctic, a um, you know it'll just basically 
function as a or continue to function as a as a big nature preserve or research uh, research platform. You know, this is this might sound fairly fairly pessimistic, but I think pessimism is in some ways rooted in reality, uh, especially as we look at the the contours and the trend lines of 21st century great power competition. It, these, to use Liz's phrase, these are not fit for purpose anymore. Um, and and we we intend to compel some conversation about about where the trajectories of the polar regions are going, especially relative to right now their international governance mechanisms. Because in many ways, international governance is, is sort of a misnomer uh, based on what people are doing and based on what states are doing and state self interest uh, driving their behaviors and their actions. And again, it's not going to devolve into military conflict just yet. But uh, any notion or any argument that says it can't is not uh, is not operating in reality. So I want to kind of wrap up by um, by asking, you know, kind of zooming out and and asking a big question again. Um, what is what is and Ryan, maybe I'll start with you. What is the risk of getting this wrong? What is the what what risks are attendant in not framing the conversation? the correct way, not having the conversations that we need to have, or fundamentally misunderstanding the character of the competition and the region? The hyperbolic answer, which nobody wants to hear, but it's it's the first thing that comes to mind. If you think about the risk, the worst possible case is maybe our strategic miscalculation uh, that, that has been informed by strategic atrophy, right? It leads to some sort of some sort of Red Dawn-esque scenario. I'm not suggesting that Russia is going to come over the Arctic, right, and, uh, you know, and bomb Alaska or something along those lines, but it is, it's not entirely impossible. It might be implausible, and I, I fully respect that. And I admit that, at least in the current frame, the current context, but it is not impossible. And one of those things that uh, that we keep coming back to, and Liz and I have discussed this in past conversations, is that the the Russians and the Chinas of the world, right? We we read their policies, and we read their intent, and we read all these public documents, and it says that they want competition, or excuse me, they want cooperation in the polar regions both in the Arctic and Antarctica. They, they want to engage in partnerships. They want to engage in productive dialogue. They want to engage in things that advance the international good and, and, and the, the common order, right? That's all good and well. That, that's what they say. But what are their actions, right? What are they actually doing? And to date, we haven't gotten to a point where it, it would contradict anything they're saying. But at the same time, you look at some of the other things that are happening. And Liz has written about uh, some of the maybe the false parallels, if you will, between uh, maybe the South China Sea and, and the Arctic in particular. Um, but look at some of the other activities, the other the other expansionist tendencies, maybe that uh, China in particular has. And it, it would be again, I come back to the phrase naive or, or the term naive, but it would be naive to think that uh, maybe there is not some sort of military interest at the very least, right? Military interest in, um, in advancing into and, and being, becoming present in the polar regions, both the Arctic and Antarctica by way of a threat, right? Then if we have a situation where uh, we'll use the Arctic in particular, given the, the proximity to the U S homeland, that uh, we have great power competitors that are present, that are more or less setting the rules in the Arctic. Um, you know, that, that, 
that puts the United States in a difficult position. That puts the United States in a position where they either have to, in a manner of speaking, comply with whatever the uh, those present competitors are are dictating, or the United States chooses that they don't want to comply. And then, of course, then we don't know what the realities, what the resulting realities would be. Uh, but it doesn't take uh, it doesn't take a creative mind to speculate as to what the the worst case could be. Again, not suggesting that it, that it will happen, but again, the, the worst case is is something that we have to at least consider because to use to go back to what Liz said right the the standard definition in the defense and, and security sphere of a threat is capability plus intent okay and and we know capability is a pretty objective fact we can assess capability in a in a fairly objective manner what we don't ultimately know is the intent and again, we we only have public documentation or intelligence uh, intelligence platforms to inform that, but it's it's at best conjecture and speculation. So um, we have to we have to attend to and prepare for the worst case, in, at least in the Arctic, given the the proximity of the U.S. homeland. And then I'll uh, defer to Liz on the Antarctic piece. Thanks. Yeah, Ryan, totally agree. It's also about I think you know strategic laziness, which starts with analysts like us. You know, it only occurs when we stop asking the questions that need to be asked. And I think collectively our field in strategic studies and security studies, when it comes to the polar regions, we've stopped asking the questions. So I think we have an opportunity to, first of all, craft some really interesting research and um, bridge some divides that exist between policymakers, military and academic communities and move towards you know, tabling some policies or some ideas that are fit for purpose for the next generation, I think is the key thing. Um, sort of get out ahead and not not be lazy about the realities of the polar regions. And just to kind of finish off on a um, sort of rainbows and sunshine, which is completely, those who know me, completely not my, my MO um, point, is what could happen if we miss this chance to consider um, and delve into the polar regions is we're going to miss an opportunity to work together, um, you know, to delineate territory between the West and and other, however we want to conceptualise other, you know, to protect environmental heritages. Um, but ultimately I think we might miss the opportunity to find commonality with non-Western states. And I think the polar regions present in very different ways, which, you know, the project will, you know, tease out, present opportunities that are available, and I hope we can grasp them. Well, Liz, Ryan, thank you so much for uh, joining me in this episode of the MWI podcast. I am uh, beyond excited about this project. I think it's a, a huge gap, um, but I think there's also you know, an audience that's kind of looking for this. And so if we can kind of create a, a home for these discussions and these explorations of, of, of complicated and nuanced and, 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 and sometimes thorny issues in a thoughtful and insightful way, uh, then I think it's a victory. Uh, but I think it's an extraordinarily interesting subject, uh, or, or sort of set of subjects and you two are really leading voices on on these topics and so i'm thrilled that we're hosting the project i'm even more thrilled that you two are are taking charge of it uh so thank you very much and 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 for listeners that are interested in this um i you know you have you have a lot to look forward to because i think there's some some great content already lined up that's going to be coming out of it hey 
Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thank you.